Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Balquell's Books. My name is Balquell, and I am the host of the show, Balquell's Books. Today's book is Oblomov by Ivan Koncharov, first published in the year 1859. And Oblomov centers around a man named Ilya Ilyich Oblomov. You may, as you, you may have guessed, his last name is Oblomov. And Oblomov is one of those sort of classic characters of 19th century Russian literature. And in fact, he gave a name to the term Oblomovism. And Oblomovism, it sounds like one of those things that, you know, later literary or cultural critics may have sort of uh, grabbed onto in order to describe subsequent people or subsequent characteristics by referencing the novel. But in fact, the term Oblomovism is contained within the novel itself and referenced repeatedly by Oblomov's best friend. So, who is Oblomov, and what is the nature of Oblomovism? Oblomov is a sedentary man, a lazy man, a dreamy man, a dreamer of dreams, and uh, somewhat a melancholic individual. And in the first section of the book, several characters, several friends of his, appear at his house one after the other, all inviting him out to the sort of same party in the evening. And they each have different reasons for wanting to bring him out, and sort of different uh, ways of trying to convince him to go with them. Uh, But Oblomov refuses them all, one after the other. And we get the sense that Oblomov is not the kind of person who likes to put himself out. That he is very comfortable in his bed. Uh, He's very comfortable within his own mind. And that he doesn't like the friction of the outside world. He doesn't appreciate um, that things out there don't work uh, the way he's used to. And that these people are always rushing around... They're striving after things, and Oblomov doesn't want any of these things that they have or any of these things they're trying to get. He's quite content with what he has, as much as uh, any man can be content with anything. But Oblomov, at the same time, has this feeling that he might be missing something, and the question that occurs to Oblomov Uh, over and over throughout this novel is the question of whether he is right and everyone else is wrong, or whether he is wrong and everyone else is right. And this question is, for the most part, a, a purely intellectual concern, because no matter which side he falls on at one moment or the other, it never really makes any difference to what he's doing. It only makes a difference to his mood. So if he is right and everyone else is wrong, then that means it's fine for him to lie in bed and dream dreams and take weeks to reply to letters and not really do anything. Because 
all this striving, all this rushing around isn't worth anything anyway. And that none of these people are any happier than he is. So he's right, and they're wrong, and therefore he can do whatever he likes. If, conversely, everyone else is right, and he's wrong, um, this makes him morose. And this makes him very depressed and sad, because he doesn't know how to be like anyone else. And so if he's wrong, and everyone else is right, this doesn't mean that he now knows how to be right. He can never get to the point where he is right. He is Oblomov. He's, he's stuck in Oblomovism. And Oblomovism is, uh, in part, this constant alternating, alternation between these two poles. This feeling of self-righteousness, kind of undeserved or unearned self-righteousness, combined or alternating with this feeling of uh, wrongchousness, <laughs> and this feeling that he's missing out on the world. And this final result that either of these feelings, neither of these feelings really lead him anywhere. That Oblomov is the type of person who doesn't change. He doesn't develop. He doesn't progress. He likes things to stay the same. He likes things to be calm and nice and uh, comfortable. So we get this sense of Oblomov from the very beginning of the novel. Through these interactions with his friends and some of his enemies, uh, we get this sense of Oblomov as he is now. I think he's around in his 30s, maybe close to 40. He's a, an older guy. He has spent some time working uh, in the government, but didn't get much out of it and has now decided to live off the earnings of his family estate. Uh, he lives in St. Petersburg, but his family estate is off in Oblomovka. Um, he has someone taking care of it who's sending him money as an income every year, but this income is dwindling uh, due to disrepair and sort of lack of development uh, of the land. After this initial sequence we then get a take a trip to the past and take a trip to Oblomov's childhood. And here we learn a little bit more about how Oblomov came to be the way he is. And this is actually quite interesting. Um, I've read that this part, this section, is in fact the first uh, part of the novel to be written and published uh, as its own sort of section. It's called Oblomov's Dream. And I think it's interesting that Koncharov's purpose here is to explain Oblomov. Because it sort of, there's this assumption here that Oblomov needs to be explained. That Oblomov is unnatural, that Oblomov is strange, and that the only way to come up with a man such as him, or for a man such as him to come into being is through some sort of extenuating circumstance. What's interesting about this is that this extenuating circumstance is not particularly extenuating at all. Simply put, his, his parents are the same as him, or at least his father is. And his father, similarly to Oblomov, doesn't really care much about doing things. 
that he likes to sit, he likes to uh, smoke his pipe or whatever, he likes to, to read, I guess, sit in the living room, the drawing room uh, with his family, and look forward to the next holiday. Uh, be it a, a name day or a feast day or some sort of holy day, Easter or something like this. Their whole life at Oblomovka sort of is based around these events and everything in between is just sort of dawdling around until they uh, come about again. Uh, Oblomov's father uh, similarly leaves the sort of estate, leaves the land in disrepair and basically refuses to do anything unless it's uh, absolutely uh, becomes absolutely necessary, uh, such as if the balcony collapses, he says, okay, I guess we've got to repair the balcony. But at no point leading up to the collapse of the balcony where will he ever say, I guess we should fix up that balcony, you know? He doesn't like to spend money because uh, every time you spend money, you have to make it again. And to make the money, uh, you got to do something. So we can see how Oblomov could develop under such a tutelage. And we see in this sort of snapshot of his past, uh, his childhood, where he was uh, somewhat coddled, spoiled in a sense. His parents didn't actually let him do things. When he, Even if he wanted to go outside and sort of throw snowballs with the local children, uh, he wasn't allowed and he'd get pulled back in and say, oh, you can't go out there, you'll catch cold or it's dangerous or what have you. He is uh, taken care of by a nanny and a servant. They put his clothes on for him. They tie his boots. Throughout the novel, at no point does Oblomov ever tie his own boots. He can't do it. He doesn't know how to do it. Um, so he's sort of uh, you can see how this upbringing might lead to a man such as Oblomov coming into existence. And thus, we get to the Oblomov that we have in the story. Now, Oblomov is contrasted with his German friend, uh, Stoltz. Andre Stoltz. Uh, I believe he's half German. His father is German. And Stoltz's father is basically the... Russian stereotype of a German. He's always doing something. He's always in action. He's always trying to improve things. He's always trying to develop things. Um, and everything in him, in his life, is practical. He's very grounded on Earth. The things he does must have material consequences. Whereas Oblomov is, everything that he does is sort of in his mind, it's all dreams, it's all ideas. Stoltz, um, Stoltz's father, and consequently Stoltz himself, is uh, conversely extremely practical. And this contrast um, is sort of the focus of the book. And the sort of question at hand, I suppose, is can Oblomov be changed? Can he be quote-unquote fixed. Um, Stoltz seems to think so at times and, and not think so at other times, but the, the question never really arises as to whether Oblomov needs fixing. And I think this is quite interesting, because 
Oblomov, the character, is written with such sympathy and such understanding that it's clear that Goncharov, the author, must have some affinity with Oblomov, that he couldn't get into the depths of this character to, to this extent without having that sort of disposition himself or having had it at times in his life. And I know this because sections of the writing about Oblomov perfectly describe myself and perfectly describe uh, sequences of thoughts or cycles of thoughts that occur in my mind, particularly this question of am I right and everyone else wrong or is everyone else wrong and I'm right? And these alternations and this these momentary passions of, oh, golly gee, I gotta go do something right now, uh, then tempered by this idea that I don't really have to do anything at all, do I? I could just, I mean, why do I, why should I do any of that? And so I can understand, I, I, I can see myself in Oblomov. And because I can see myself in Oblomov, I know that it was written by a person, and it was written by a person who, to some extent, has uh, affinity with Blomov and, therefore, myself. However, despite this sympathy on the part of the author and on the part of several other characters in the novel, there is never really a sense um, in the book that Oblomov should be allowed. That Oblomov is the type of person that can... Uh, be left to exist, that the tone of the book implies that Oblomov is wrong and everyone else is right. And this is very interesting to me, that this question is so implicitly and explicitly answered in such a way to say Oblomov is wrong, despite all this sympathy that... uh, the, the author might have for him. It is never at any moment sort of considered that Oblomov might be okay, that it might be okay to be someone like Oblomov. I mean, obviously Oblomov is an, an extreme case. I mean, he, he's not, you know, realistic. I mean, he's he's much further gone than I've ever been gone, you know. It takes about 150 pages of this book for him to get out of bed. So... You know, but even though he is extreme, there is a sense, I mean, I read this book and I think at times, yeah, this guy's got the right idea, you know, he's, he's doing fine. Or at least he can be, um, there is a way to reconcile himself with the world that it's not a case of Oblomov needing to be fixed or needing to change 180 degrees to become like Stoltz, to become active and whatever. He just needs a little push. He needs to meet the world a little bit in the middle, you know. Maybe he can lie in bed a few hours in the morning. Doesn't Maybe not all day. Maybe not till 1 p.m. or such like this. Maybe there's a way that he can have this time for himself that he needs and he can have this sort of uh, lonely time, this dreaming time, and also uh, be active at other times and in other ways and in ways that fit uh, his nature. That's not really what seems to be um, the concern here in this book. We need Oblomov to change into an active man, 
And the way Stoltz uh, goes about trying to do this is that he sort of sets up a little love match between Oblomov and a woman named Olga, or a young woman named Olga. And Olga is a, a bright young girl, and she doesn't have any of the pretensions of other young women. Uh, she's not vain. Uh, she's a little bit naive, but she's naive in a way in which she wants to learn things. She wants to learn about the world. She wants to understand the world, and she wants to play an active role in it. And she sees Oblomov as someone with a tender heart, a kind heart, a kind soul, who has been lost, who has fallen from the world, who perhaps she can bring back up, who perhaps with her influence uh, can become a sort of functional member of society. And I said before that maybe Olga's uh, not vain, and she's, she's not vain in the sense that in the sense of the women that she is compared to in the novel. Um, but she is a little bit vain in that she believes that the power of her love and her influence will be enough to change Oblomov, to bring him back into the world, that she can inspire him with her love. And it almost works. Oblomov, despite being sedentary, and between being sort of easily stuck in ruts and stuck into routines, is at heart extremely passionate, funnily enough, that he is perhaps so passionate that he must hide his passion 90% of the time because to live um, at the passionate extremes he is capable of for a whole life or for even half of a life or even 30% of the time would be uh, exhausting and uh, maybe kill him. But Oblomov is capable of these extreme passions, and he feels this passion for Olga. His love inspires him, and when he's with her, he, he feels that he can be all the things that she wants him to be. He feels that he can do these things that he doesn't have to take three weeks to write a letter, he can just write it and send it off. That he will be able to go to his estate in Oblomovka and fix it all up and get the peasants in line and make a school and build up the house again so they can live with it, live in it and have children and all this stuff. Build a, a road to connect the village to the nearest uh, highway or all this other stuff. And while he's with Olga, his passion makes him believe he can do all these things. And as soon as he's apart from Olga, he sort of falls back into inaction. And it seems that this passion uh, is somewhat uh, fleeting. The passion he feels for Olga inspires him to say all these things and gives him the confidence that he believes he can actually do all of it. But this passion isn't actually directed towards the actions themselves, but towards Olga on one hand, and also this ideal future that he's building, where he can play the role uh, of his father and sit around and smoke a pipe and have kids and have his wife around and live in uh, the countryside instead of in a sort of um, 
little apartment in in St. Petersburg that he can have this whole house and he can walk around in the nature and the garden and all this sort of stuff. But he doesn't have the passion for the one, two, three, four steps that, that get you there. He only has the passion for the final result. And this passion just cannot be translated to the little things that he's an idealist, he's a dreamer, and, and his passion is for dreams. His passion is not for the everyday world. And eventually, Ablamov and Olga both come to the understanding that Ablamov is not the man for Olga, and probably Olga is not really the woman uh, for Ablamov in the end, that although they have this passion and this love, um, they don't, they aren't compatible in that way. That Olga starts to see that even though Oblamov believes himself capable of these things, he's, he's really not. And the, perhaps the reason is, is because Oblamov's final ideal, after all these things he wants to do, is inaction. His final dream is to sit around and do nothing. And what he co continuously realizes is that he can do that already by just not doing anything. This is the problem with the sort of final dream like this, is if your ideal life is to not have to do anything, you don't have to do one, two, three, four, all the steps to get there. Why, why bother? You cannot do anything right now, you know? You can just look at me. I'm sitting in a chair. <clears throat> I could be sitting in a chair in my living room, or I could be, you know, wishing I could be sitting in the chair in the living room right now. Uh, but I'd have to walk to get there, and walking is not sitting. Walking is something, something else entirely. And if I want to sit, I mean, I'm already sitting. I mean, this room is not as nice as the living room, you know? The, the living room has some nice qualities to it that make it a little better than sitting in this room. But I'm already here, and I'm already sitting, and sitting is sort of the essential part of this. So that's sort of the, the Blama of dream. That's sort of the Oblomovism here, is that he realizes when he looks into the future that the future that he's imagining is really a lot like what he's already doing. And that he doesn't really feel the passion to work for it. So Oblamov and Olga, they have this, this love story. And it's really a beautiful love story in the middle, I think. I mean, it's not beautiful in the sense that it ends with, you know, love and marriage and whatever. But we get to see the um, essential character of Oblamov come out through this love story and through this passion. And we see, as I said before, these alternating poles of his righteousness and his wrongchiousness, as I called it, um, that at times he's just so overwhelmed with, with his love for Olga and the passion they feel for each other. And he's like, you know, this is the greatest thing and, and we deserve this and this is, this is beautiful. And other times he realizes, or he has this inkling of a feeling that this isn't right, that uh, what Olga sees in him is something different than he is, and that all he will do in the end is drag her down into his uh, sort of 
oblomivism, that her youthful energy will eventually subside into inaction, into his dream of inaction, and that this is not what Olga wants or perhaps even deserves. When their love story finally falls apart, we get a sense that that was the last chance for Oblomov. And the final third of the book seems to fall victim to the fact that Goncharov does not believe that Oblomov can change, and that Goncharov cannot see a world or cannot see a lifestyle that suits Oblomov. And I think this is perhaps a failing of the novel, I would say, that Oblomov, it starts extremely strongly, and I think it has such a vivid characterization and such a memorable man in Oblomov, but it it fumbles in the fact that its conception of Oblomov is so stagnant that it is not active, that we do not see Oblomov develop throughout the novel because the core premise of the book is that Oblomov is a man that cannot develop, that Oblomov is a lost man, that Oblomov is a hopeless man. And thus, as we sort of reach what would ideally be a sort of climax of the book, or at least a sort of resolution in which Oblomov comes to some sort of understanding, or Oblomov develops in some manner, instead what happens is Oblomov is finally lost completely. That Oblomov is never able to overcome any of his problems, any of his sort of neuroses, I suppose. He's not, he's not a neurotic person, but he has these sort of mental qualities that, that make things difficult for him, that make living a life like Stolz does not really possible. And he never comes to uh, an understanding of how these can, can be reconciled with the world, as I mentioned previously. So instead, the novel ends with Oblomov sort of just falling further and further until eventually uh, he has a stroke, and then several years later, he dies. The novel ends with Stolz telling someone about Oblomov and, and what he did, and the man asks, oh, well, what, what did he die of? And Stoltz says, Oblomovism! You know, a very dramatic moment. Oblomovism, it killed him. And I think this sort of plays into what I was saying earlier, this idea of Oblomovism as a, as a disease. Oblomovism is a, as a, the most terrible thing that can happen to a man. And I really think that this is really where the book stumbles so completely. And I think... Although the character of Oblomov is so memorable and so so wonderful and so funny, I mean, this book is hilarious, I do think that there is potential for this book to really come to a greater understanding of Oblomov, to really uh, express something deeper about Oblomov than this idea that he's lost or that he's failed or that... If you are a man such as Oblomov, or you know someone like Oblomov, uh, the idea seems to be give up on him. Even if they are tender-hearted, even if they are kind, even if they 
um, even if their dreams are, are beautiful or anything like this, uh, there's no hope for an Oblomov. And in fact, I saw that other translations of the book, instead of Oblomovism, call it Oblomovitis. And Oblomovitis, well, that's pretty harsh. I mean, Oblomovism is one thing, because that sort of sounds like a philosophy. It sounds like a an ideology. It sounds like a way of thinking. It's real. It, it's got some purpose to it, you could say. It's got some essence to it. Oblomovitis is a disease. It doesn't have any of those potential positive qualities. It's entirely negative. Oblomovitis is something that kills you slowly. And uh, I actually don't know which of these sort of translations is more accurate to the Russian. And when I think about it, Oblomovitis definitely more accurately just describes or more accurately fits, maybe it's more apt to what I felt was the conclusion of the novel. What I felt was the overlying message of the novel was that Oblomov and Oblomovitic, people with Oblomovitis, uh, will succumb to it eventually. But Oblomovism, to me, the the ideal that will stick with me of Oblomovism has these potential positive qualities to it. At times, even in the book, Oblomov is compared uh, to a saint or to a monk, or, you know, these reclusive church fathers, these people who go away from society for some sort of reason, whose purity, whose innocence um, is laudable, who see the corruption who see the suffering of action and rushing and striving and say, well, let's feel free to do that, but I'll, I'll pass, I'll do something else. That's Oblomovism. And there's potential in Oblomovism, I believe, or I have to believe, that there's potential in Oblomovism for a good life. Oblomovitis, on the other hand, maybe not. So that's my thoughts on Oblomov by Ivan Goncharov. When I began it, I really thought this would be grow into one of my favorite novels. I was very enthusiastic at the beginning. It's such a funny and memorable opening and such a an engaging character, despite, like I said, he doesn't get out of bed until page 100 or so. Or he gets out of bed onto an armchair and then by page 150, he's He's back in bed, and that, you know that's that's very funny. Uh, but overall, I feel that the book fumbled Oblomov. That the book did not that the book did not use this character as well as it could have. That it it did not do as much as I thought it might do with Oblomov. That being said, I still think it's a fantastic book. I mean, it's a, it's hilarious. Um, and this character is someone who, even though he doesn't get up to much, he's very engaging to follow. And it's very engaging to see the way he sees the world and to see all these different characters around him and how they interact with someone like Oblomov. He's sort of this character that's so different from other people that he acts as this sort of catalyst for them all to treat him in ways that reflect things about their own character, that the way they see Oblomov, what they want Oblomov to be, or um, if they see Oblomov as 
someone they can use for their own purposes or such forth and such forth that uh, all the workings around Oblomov uh, are also quite interesting. So that's Oblomov by Ivan Goncharov. Definitely worth a read. I mean, a real classic 19th century Russian literature. I mean, there's just classics abound uh, in 19th century Russian literature. Just so many wonderful books. And this is definitely one of them. Uh, definitely worth checking out. So thank you for listening to the show. Uh, this has been Balkwell's books, as always. Um, if you have any thoughts about this book or any topic that I've covered on the show in the past, you can write in. Please write into the show, uh, balkwellsbooks at gmail.com, or you can leave a comment on YouTube or on my website, balkwell.online, where I publish all these podcasts as well as uh, essays uh, every two weeks. You can check out my novel, Only in Dreams. It is available now on Amazon. Uh, the music for the show is by Max Miller, a.k.a. Fun Bill. Thank you for the music. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. I uh, will see you again at some other time in the future. Goodbye.